Hi guys, and welcome to Ghost Stories, where throughout the month of Halloween, well, October, the Halloween month, I'll be posting different sort of Halloween-related stories. Today, I'm going to look at The Curse of King Tutankhamun. While the general consensus is that there's no curse given the low death toll, I still decided to do The Curse of King Tut for a few reasons. One, mummies obviously. Two, he's currently on tour. And three, because of his trumpets. I had the chance of going to the LA exhibit of King Tut's tomb, which is something if you have the chance to do, I think it's currently in Europe, you should do it. It was really incredible seeing these 3,000 year old artifacts that have been perfectly preserved. It was just stunning. The hand craftsmanship and the detail work is absolutely mind-blowing. While at the exhibit, they had like, you know, different musical instruments and stuff on display, but there is one particular trumpet on display that has brought with it a legacy of mass death and war, even into the modern era. Trumpets are usually seen as a battle cry for war. And after they discovered the trumpet in uh, King Tut's tomb back in the 20s, it was played for the first time in 3,000 years on the BBC in 1939. A few months later, World War II started. Now, for the Americans who are mostly probably only listening to this since I'm American, in, you're probably like, well, World War II started in the 40s. Actually, World War II had been going on for several years before we decided to join, and that's when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. The trumpet was again played in 1967, shortly before the Six-Day War started. The Six-Day War, also known as the June War, the 1967 Arab-Israeli War, and the Third Arab-Israeli War was fought between the 10th and 5th of June, so the 5th and 10th of June of 1967 by Israel and its neighboring states of Egypt, Jordan, and Syria. The trumpet was played once again in 1990, right before the Gulf War broke out, and this is when the U.S. went into the Middle East to defend Saudi Arabia. While I was fact-checking online, I found a statement that was saying allegedly it was played again in 2011, right before the Egyptian Revolution began. I'm not sure if that last one is true. But just based off the first three wars, I find that to be a pretty big coincidence. I read somewhere that it might be even responsible for up to five wars. And what's interesting is that all the wars that they directly link it to involve the Middle East and even Egypt specifically. In World War II, the Arabi revolt against the Egyptian Kaidev um, happened, and though it was never a British colony, it was occupied by the UK. And it was also involved in the Gulf War. One of the devil's advocate to possibly the trumpet being linked without it being accursed is that there are religious and spiritual sound wavelengths that can have an effect on people. And if you uh, think of like Judeo-Christian folklore, there have been similar trumpets like that throughout the stories, such as like Gabriel's horn. I don't know, I don't think I can explain this very well, but basically there's this concept called sound baths, and people like gently play gongs and like they'll brush like a wooden, I guess, drumstick against the inside of a copper bowl to make these waves of sound to cleanse you. It's a very LA thing, like it's sound baths are very in right now, but the idea is that these wavelengths can like cleanse you. So enough about King Tut's trumpet 
and let's get into the curse of the pharaohs. The disruption of a pharaoh's tomb, whether it's for a thief or an archaeologist, is something that brings them bad luck, illness, or death. Warnings of curses have been found on the outside of tombs, though rare, as such an act of defiling a tomb was so unspeakable and unthinkable to people that they didn't even want to write it down. But there have been accounts of people being cursed and the effects of those cursed who disturbed um, tombs before King Tut was even found. Of course, after he was found, the stories of curses multiplied, as they do. Curses were found most commonly in the Old Kingdom era, which is 2686 to 2181 BCE in Egypt, and were extremely severe. Hieroglyphs weren't actually able to be deciphered until the beginning of the 19th century, so the 1800s, by a man I presume is French, Jean-Francois Chapon. It looks like Chapolian, but I'm pretty sure it's like pronounced Chapon. Most things associated with the disruption of Egyptian tunes uh, were just considered bad luck. They didn't have like all this death involved. For example, there's a story back in 1699. Two mummies from Alexandria were excavated and were taken along a boat to go back to probably Europe in England. England just took everything from everybody. And they embarked on a sea journey with the mummies in the cargo hold. The travelers were alarmed by recurring visions of these two specters, and they hit horrible weather, like the seas were very stormy, and these recurring nightmares and the stormy seas didn't die down until they threw the mummies overboard, which I'm sure is exactly what they want to just toss them over the side. Another story comes from this Egyptian archaeologist, Ahiwahas, and he recalls that back in his earlier days as an archaeologist, he was excavating at Kam Abu Bello, and he had to transport a lot of um, the artifacts from this Greco-Roman site. And the day he did that, his cousin died. The first anniversary of this excavation, his uncle died, and three years on the anniversary of the day he moved the artifacts, his aunt died literally the same day. Years later, when he excavated the tombs of the builders of the pyramids of Giza, he encountered this curse. And it said, All people who enter this tomb, who will make evil against this tomb and destroy it, may the crocodile be against them in water, and snakes against them on land. May the hippopotamus be against them in water, the scorpion against them on land. So just, you know, covering all the bases. Later, Wahas was involved in the removal of two child mummies from Bahiria Oasis, and he took the child mummies to a museum. He reported that he was being haunted by the children in his dreams. These recurring nightmares didn't stop until the mummy of the father was reunited with the children at the museum, which is low-key kind of adorable. They just wanted their dad, which is sweet, I think. There's also another account, and this is all before King Tut was found in the 20s, but there was an account of this sick young boy who loved Egypt. I am not clear if he was Egyptian himself or he was just like super into Egyptology like a lot of us non-Egyptians are, but he loved Egypt so much that when he made eye contact with a mummy at a museum, I'm assuming, he was cured. So 
I guess it can be positive too. A lot of the pop culture around mummies, like coming back from the dead for revenge, actually does come from real curses that did indeed speak of resurrections. So it's not just Hollywood trying to be extra spooky, that's actually grounded in some Egyptian lore. Now, an interesting side note is that these two stories were found by these people. I don't actually know what their jobs are. S.J. Wolf, Robert Singerman, and Jasmine Day. They found two stories, one called The Mummy's Soul, which was written by Anonymous in 1862, and After 3,000 Years, written by Jane Austen in 1868. And both of them actually have similar plots in which a female mummy takes a magical revenge upon her male rapist. Jasmine Day therefore argues that the modern European concept of curses is based upon an analogy between the desecration of tombs and rape, interpreting early curse fiction as proto-feminist narratives authored by women. Clearly, I copied and pasted that from Wikipedia. But that's actually, it's actually really cool. That's, it's like an empowerment thing. And that's a lot of what the whole shtick is about curses and tombs and mummies is that this is a very sacred religious ceremony that people do to allow their deceased loved ones to pass over. It's one of the reasons why King's, King Tut's tomb is had so many amazing artifacts preserved is because they used to, you know, build giant pyramids over the tombs of pharaohs, which were basically like giant beacons for grave diggers to be like, look, here's a lot of unprotected, like, magical gold loot. Come and steal. So by the time King Tut died, even though there's also a little shadiness around how he died, they're like, maybe we shouldn't let grave robbers know where this is. And so King Tut was just buried away under the sands of time which is why the find was so incredible, in addition to the fact he was erased from history. So who is King Tut? King Tut was discovered in 1922 by Howard Carter, launching modern-day Egyptology. King Tut was a 19-year-old boy king who was possibly the victim of murder. He was thought to be murdered mostly because he was erased from all of history. There's no really record of him until he's discovered in the 20s. He ruled for nine years from 1332 to 1323 BCE, known as the New Kingdom Era. Thanks to DNA testing, they were able to figure out his lineage. After he took the throne at about age nine or ten, he married his half-sister, Anak Hesen Paten. You have to bear with me, I am Persian, not Egyptian, who later changed her name to Anak Sinamun. They had two daughters, both stillborn, wonder why. And given his age, it's makes sense to, you know, kind of assume that he had a strong advisory board who made plans for him. Because he had some really strong plans to restore diplomatic relations with some of the neglected regions, and he ended the worship of the god Aten and restored the god Amun to supremacy. And the ban on the cult of Amun was lifted to the traditional privileges were restored to its priesthood. Interesting, they're both sun gods. And I'm guessing that, like, something must have happened to his, like, father because why would a boy king one take over? But also, like, he clearly undid his father's rule, which is also why his wife slash half-sister changed his name. And also why he changed his name. His original name was Tutankhaten. 
living in the image of Aten, and now it's Tutankhamun living in the, uh, the image of Amun. He had a lot of medical issues, one of which was klippel feel syndrome, which is the fusion of seven vertebrae. He had scoliosis, a cleft lip, an overbite, large incisors. I don't know why these are medical conditions. I'm just putting it out there. His left foot was also messed up, and he had malaria. And his DNA test uh, to find the malaria is actually the oldest DNA proof of the disease. And this is why we don't do incest. While it is debated whether he was murdered or not, he might have died of a leg infection after breaking it or sickle cell. Shits me a little hard because I broke my leg, you know, earlier this year. So feel your pain, bro. He ruled Egypt during the height of its power for 10 years. And while he was erased from most of history, there are signs that his burial and tomb were hastily made. Spotting in the paintings shows that the tomb was most likely sealed before the paint even dried. Why his enemies were so ready to erase the boy king in his line, as he was the last one in his line, it's unknown. To be honest, I think he was murdered. I think it's all a little shady. They wanted to get rid of him. He might have been, especially he was 19 at the time. It's a lot easier to control a nine-year-old kid than a 19-year-old young man. So he might have started having his own thoughts and opinions, and they decided to get rid of him. I think that's what happened with the hasty making of the tomb. And he also did a lot in terms of religious and like diplomatic improvements or changes in Egypt during the height of its power. So I find that very shady that there's no recollection of him or anything about him in history. After his tomb was discovered, one of the first signs of the curse was almost immediate. Carter's canary was killed by a cobra, which is the symbol of Egyptian royalty. Egyptian death masks traditionally have a cobra on them ready to strike. Two weeks before the first death, English novelist and mystic Marie Corelli wrote what Wikipedia refers to as in a quote-unquote imaginative letter that was published in the New York World magazine in which she quoted an obscure book that confidently asserted that quote-unquote dire punishment would follow any intrusion into a sealed tomb. Thanks to this letter, once the first death happened, the media madness ensued. Supposedly, she had seen him six weeks before he died, laughing and joking about going into the tomb. Celebratory, I assume, and said to someone who I guess can corroborate the story, I give him six weeks to live. So who is this him, the first death? George Herbert, the fifth Earl of Carnarvon. That's English and I can barely say it. The first, the fifth Earl of Carnarvon. An English lord, an amateur archaeologist, an Egyptian lord, and an amateur Egyptologist who would spend winters in Egypt with his wife. Which sounds like a dream. Oh my gosh. I like I truly love Egypt and like the romantic period of the twenties and thirties and like ugh. Have a hot chick down in Egypt for like a few months and go back to England. Sounds amazing. His wife Almina Victoria Maria Alexandra Wombwell, yep, that's her name, was the illegitimate daughter of millionaire banker Alfred de Rothschild of the Rothschild family. So this is back in the day where there were still dowries, I guess, because in 1895, he was going to marry Amelia Victoria Maria Alexandra Wombwell. Alfred Rothschild not only paid off all of uh, George's debts, 
but gave him 500,000 pounds in 1895 money. I mean, we're talking millions today, I'm assuming. I would be so happy to get paid to marry, like, the chick I love. Like, damn. So because Lord Carnarvon had so much money, he decided to sponsor some archaeological digs. Why not? The first one was with Howard Carter, the guy who discovered King Tut. 1907. The second one was in 1914 in the Valley of the Kings. This excavation was interrupted by World War I, how rude, and then resumed in 1917. Now, this is like decades of working together and excavating, and very little had been turning up. He decided that in 1922, this would be his last year. And luckily for him, or perhaps unluckily, on November 4th, they made quite a discovery. Remember how I was talking about that the pyramids are like these, you know, beacons for tombs and they stopped doing that? Well, King Tut was just so hidden that there's basically, it was like finding a needle in a haystack or a sandbag, I guess. And on top of that, there is also no record of King Tut, so they were not looking for him. This was just an amazing once-in-a-lifetime discovery. Now, reportedly, a water boy, while getting water or setting up his jugs or doing something related to being a water boy, was actually the one to find the first steps leading to the tomb. The tomb was to be officially opened under the supervision of the Egyptian Department of Antiquities on the 29th of November. However, on the 26th and 27th of November, Carter, his assistant Arthur Chandler, Lord Carnarvon, and Lady Evelyn made several unauthorized visits inside the tomb. I don't know who Lady Evelyn is, but she was there. And they were all present when Carter basically, he made like a tiny breach or what I imagine to be like a hole in the left-hand corner of the tomb's doorway. And he was able to peer in by candlelight and Carnivore asked, can you see anything? And Carter replied with the famous words, yes, wonderful things. They then entered the tomb, becoming the first people in modern times to do so. On March 19, 1923, Carnivore suffered a severe mosquito bite, which became infected by a razor cut. On April 5th, he died in the Continental Savoy Hotel in Cairo. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who is the writer and creator of Sherlock Holmes, suggested that Lord Carnarvon's death had been caused by quote-unquote elements created by Tutankhamun's priests to guard the royal tomb. And this, of course, furthered media interest in addition to the letter from Corelli. Somehow, the infection is related to pneumonia, which he had constantly. Now, there's 25 other people who did enter the tomb, and they did not die, so that's why people are skeptical about, you know, the curse. But, I don't know, maybe King Tut just went after the first few people, or the people who um, breached the hole, or maybe he just went after the money bags. We don't know. Who's to say? In 1925, archaeologist Henry Field visited the tomb and recalled the kindness and friendliness of Carter. He also reported that Carter gave his friend Sir Bruce Ingram a gift of a paperweight. And the paperweight was a mummified hand with a wrist that was adorned with a scarab bracelet marked with Curse be he who moves my body. To him shall come fire, water, and pestilence. Soon after receiving the gift, Field recalled that Ingram's home burned down followed by a flood that happened and an after is rebuilt. I do have to say, though, like, why would you 
give someone a mummified hands a paperweight. That's rude, and I would also be pissed, but who would want that as a gift? Sorry, I'm just, that's a little, <laughs> a little weird to me. Carter, who the uh, guy who's credited with finding Tutankhamun, in May of 1926, he wrote in his diary that he saw jackals, who are, uh, represent the god Anubis, who is the guardian of the dead. And he saw them for the first time within a year of opening the tomb, and it was the first time he had ever seen them in the 35 years of working in Egypt. Carter was a skeptic, just to be clear. The other deaths associated with King Tut's curse include, but are not limited to, George J. Gould I, a visitor of the tomb, he died in the French Riviera on the 16th of May, 1923, after he developed a fever following his visit. Prince Ali Kamal Faham Bey of Egypt died on July 10th, 1923, shot dead by his wife, Marguerite Albert. Colonel the Honorable Aubrey Herbert, MP Carnivarn's half-brother, became nearly blind and died on September 26, 1923 from blood poisoning related to a dental procedure intended to restore his eyesight. There's so many problems here. A dental surgery intended to restore his eyesight. I'm just going to leave it at that. Sir Archibald Douglas Reed, a radiologist who x-rayed Tutankhamun's mummy, died on January 15, 1924 from a mysterious illness. Sir Lee Stack, Governor General of Sudan, died on November 19, 1924, assassinated while driving through Cairo. A.C. Mace, a member of Carter's excavation team, died in 1928 from arsenic poisoning. The Honorable Mervyn Herbert, Carnivar's half-brother and then his half-brother's full brother, Aubrey's, Herbert's full brother, died on May 26, 1929, reportedly from malarial pneumonia. Captain the Honorable Richard Bethel, Carter's personal secretary, died on the 15th of November, 1929. He died in bed in a Mayfair club, the victim of a suspected smothering. Richard Lutterall Pilkington, Bethel III Baron Westbury, father of the Honorable Richard Bethel, died on February 20th, 1930, he supposedly threw himself off the seventh floor apartment. And the most skeptical death of all, Howard Carter, who opened the tomb on the 16th of February, 1923, and died well over a decade later on March 2nd, 1939. However, some still attribute his death to the curse. He died of lymphoma, which theoretically could be associated with King Tut's tomb. A scientific theory behind the illnesses and the curses is that the bacteria that had remained there for thousands of years infected people or they cut themselves or breathed it in and they ended up dying. Though, I would like to point out that it's very interesting that most of these deaths are rather violent and all of them were taken before their time. Now, my main thing about the skeptics, who are people who are skeptical of the curse, is that they want to be like, Everybody who even looked at the tomb, who even thought about the tomb, had to meet some horrible death, or it doesn't count. Like, one death I think is too many, but it's like a weird morbid, like, skepticism that they need more death to connect it to being a curse. Now, who was killed and why is actually pretty interesting. 
A lot of the deaths were violent or complete freak accidents. Arsenic poisoning, smothering in a bed, shot by your wife, assassinated. Like, I mean, those are like straight out of a 1920s like murder mystery novel. But they say that Howard gets away scot-free because he died of lymphoma 10 years later. My uncle died of lymphoma last year. And he was actually about the same age as Howard. And I can tell you that it's not an easy death and it's still 20 years too soon. Also, not all curses are going to be super powerful. Now, not all curses are going to be super powerful. Now, especially seeing that King Tut's tomb was done quickly and the evidence that there was a murder and that many of the people who died were rich and powerful is an interesting connection. Maybe King Tut was only interested and killing those who were rich and powerful because that's who killed him. Maybe because everything was done quickly, the priests didn't get in a strong enough curse. But also, maybe there are more deaths, and the only deaths that were reported are those of the rich and powerful. And on the flip side, this discovery and Howard's very careful, meticulous, and respectful cataloging of over 5,000 artifacts brought King Tut's memory back into the world. He had been completely forgotten. He'd been erased, and everybody and like everyone knows who King Tut is. So maybe he also decided to take a little easy on them because, in a way, they did actually bring him back to life. I do think that the mystic and romance of ancient Egypt and its wildly rich culture of magic and gods does add an element of mystique to the mystery of King Tut. But to be honest, as someone who's pretty skeptical, maybe it's the Middle Eastern in me, but I feel that there's a curse. I think if everyone died of a similar bacterial infection, I could chalk it off as like, sure, okay. But that isn't the case. King Tut will probably always remain a mystery to us because to be honest, as people, as a human race, we love mysteries and a good story. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Don't forget to like, rate, share, and subscribe, share with your friends, and go on Instagram to see some photos, ghost stories pod, and you can even follow me, your host, Yasmin Gasiri. Until the next story, happy Halloween. Hey, it's a spooky spooky.